Hi guys, welcome to the Earthy Delights podcast. Today we spoke to Uma Kankia from Dope Black Dads. We spoke to Uma about being a black father bringing up children in Britain. We talked about the complexity of bringing up children in a mixed faith household and how both their British culture and Nigerian heritage are sources of great pride. Uma tells us about the difficulty of always being put in a box and not living up to black stereotypes of what a man should be. We also spoke about the brotherhood fostered in Dope Black Dads which is a community of black fathers who help support each other emotionally and mentally. It was such an interesting conversation and gave us, and we hope gives you, an insight into some of the many difficulties of being a black member of society in Britain today. We loved having Umar on the podcast and it was great to hear about all the aims and aspirations of Dope Black Dads, as well as what they've already achieved today. So without further ado, here is Umar. Umar, welcome to the Earthy Delights. Thank you so much for coming on. What's the crack? How are we doing? Yeah, all good, guys. Thanks for having me, Seb. Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm tired, man. It's just been a, <laughs> a crazy 24 hours. It's half term here as well. We've had it. Yeah. We're on a two week half term as well. So my daughter's already been off for a week, but her and my son uh, are currently at my uh, at my mother in law's house, so they're staying there for the yeah. Month. Uh, yeah, so me and my wife can just chill get on with other bits of work and stuff but for them to have a nice night away and be spoiled by grandma so yeah <laughs> lovely all good though all good oh, good stuff, it, it good was, stuff. I, I wanted to ask just quickly was this the first time you've been asked what's the crack because i thought i heard in a recent episode of dope black dads the host asking someone what's the crack and i just needed to confirm it or not i <laughs> uh, no, it's not actually because if, funnily enough uh i'll speak it very quietly because well actually no she knows anyway but yeah my ex-girlfriend is actually from northern ireland so ah. I think it's from like a decade ago we're talking okay. about so yeah so what's the crack was very much part and parcel you know in my vocabulary uh for a long period of time so okay. yeah so yeah no, not the first time i've heard it jim there you go well jim can now uh, whack out all sorts of irish vocabulary now he's gonna have the confidence <laughs> he's probably gonna try and test you <laughs> um we'll bring it on <laughs> <laughs> Uma, before before we get going, um, and I'm really looking forward to this one. It's something. It's one that I've uh, yeah, we've, Jim and I've got a lot of questions that we want to ask you. But before we get going, anyone who isn't kind of aware of, of you or and where, what you do, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about Dope Black Dads, how it kind of all started and what what you're all about, really? Yeah. So a bit about me. So my name's Uma. I'm 35 years old. I'm married to my wonderful wife, Comfort. I've got two children, Talia, who's five, Xavier, who's two and a half. Uh, What I do by trade, I'm actually a qualified lawyer. So I've been qualified now for eight years practicing in England. Um, I was predominantly been practicing in the field of mental health. So representing people who've been detained under the Mental Health Act here uh, in, in England and Wales. Um, but more recently, I've been doing a lot more work around mental capacity work. So dealing with lasting powers of attorney, enduring powers of attorney. So people that uh, making decisions and having attorneys appointed to deal with their finances or their health and welfare, should they lose their capacity. Uh, alongside of that, I also, um, so I still do a bit of mental health, predominantly doing uh, the LPA mental capacity stuff. I also teach, uh, I lecture part-time at the University of Winchester. So I'm teaching sports and the law um, to the second and third years there. So I've been doing that for the last couple of months. Um, And I'm also a member of Dope Black Dads and I have been now for the last 18 months. 
Um, Dope Black Dads basically was set up by a guy called Marvin Harrison. So he established this back in uh, Father's Day 2018. So he had kind of been feeling a bit low about fatherhood, parenthood. Um, and on Father's Day, he it kind of really compounded for him. So he sent out a text to a number of dads that he knew, black dads that he knew. And, you know, suddenly they were kind of sharing similar feelings, similar sentiments. And Dope Black Dads was born. And the whole ethos and premise behind Dope Black Dads is very much to educate, to inspire, to heal and to celebrate black fathers. And really, it's about changing the narrative of what it means to be a black father, because a lot of times people will see black fathers as being absent, as being non-present in their children's lives. You know, that's the perception that's been created of what it means to be a black father. What we're saying is actually that is very much a minority view that's been held up as a majority. But the majority are actually people who are law-abiding, who are professionals in their own right, who are making waves in their local communities and far beyond, and actually are very much present and alive to the fact that they have got children and they are playing a very active role in their lives and trying to change the narrative behind what it means to be a black father. Mm. I mean, that's great. And I mean, it's great. I know that you're achieving a lot of that anyway, because you've gone so far. It was only two years is ridiculous, really, because you've achieved so much in such a short time. So it's yeah. kind of a big inspiration for a podcast like ours and stuff, which is fairly a bit of a baby at the moment. So, I mean, it's great to see the, the good work that you're doing. You you touched on it there. And there mm. is a really negative stereotype about um, that's kind of portrayed in the media, um, mm. be it films or be it the news or, or, or the print press. Um, mm about like the absence of of um black fathers um do you believe there's any truth to that whatsoever um and if there, if you do think there is any truth um mm. what do you think can be done to kind of to reverse that or to stop that or to change that i don't think there is truth to that and i think it's a case of how parenting was viewed maybe 30 40 years ago versus where we are yeah. now so i think a lot of times, and you know, I'm speaking from somebody who is Nigerian, um, you know, got Nigerian heritage, but born here in the UK. And it was very much a case of my parents came over, first generation Nigerians coming over in the in the 80s. I know lots of friends who've got parents that came over in the Windrush generation. And very much mm-hmm. it was about for them trying to establish themselves in this country. So their absence was very much not because they didn't want to be present and i don't think that that was the case it's very much like they're trying to establish themselves they're trying to work hard trying to create opportunities for their children to be able to kind of carve out a much better life for themselves than what they've been able to do so i think what you tend to see is very much like you know this this whole notion of black fathers going around sowing their seeds you know having all these children not really being Mm. present but actually, that's very much a minority view. And, you know, I maintain that it has been a minority view. But sadly, it's very easy to kind of demonize and glamorize that and make it seem yeah. like that is the majority of black fathers and, and black people generally. And even when you look at how media portray a lot of black people anyway, you know, over the years, if you're a black male, especially living in London, you know, the statistics around stop and search and, you know, how much more frequent you are likely to be stopped by police for being black. And this kind of stems back to the SUS laws that were used in the 70s and the 80s before the Police and Criminal Evidence Act came in. uh, And that changed the whole way that policing was to be viewed. And obviously you had the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the changes that came along from that. So I think for black 
people, there's always we've always kind of been fighting against the tide somewhat. We're trying to change some yeah. kind of a narrative and a, and a perception, which I think is really interesting because ultimately people that came over from the Windrush generation in 48, they were the ones who were told and were actively recruited by the British to come over to this country and help build up our NHS, help build up the transport and rail system. So I'm not sure at what juncture did it go from, yeah, you're here to help us and help make the country rebound from the Second World War and do really great things to you guys are drug addicts, you're absent fathers, you're criminals. So, you know, I don't get where that dichotomy has occurred in, in, in the intervening years. Mm, yeah, it is an interesting one because, like you say, it's portrayed so much in the media. And then I feel like whenever there is the odd example where it reaffirms the stereotype, then that's always been, oh, look at that guy. Mm. Here he is, you know, typical, whatever that may be. Yeah. And it just reaffirms that stereotype, which may, like you said, doesn't really, isn't really proportionate to black fathers in general. Mm -hmm. But yet you have a one or two negative kind of stories and then that's it, all tarnished with the same brush. Yeah. <laughs> It's easy for people to just, you know, to run with that because, you know, yeah, it, it takes work to try and find out and understand more what's going on in a community, especially if it's a community that is alien to you and, you know, you just feel like, well, I don't need to bother with that. And that's where I think with Dope Black Dads, as I said, we're all about changing the narrative. And actually, we're not saying mm. that we're going to wait for people to come and learn about you know what black fathers are doing we're actually saying listen we're just going to kick the door down and tell tell you this is what we're doing this is what we're about and i think that's what's kind of sparked its growth over the last couple of years is the fact that we have been in people's faces we haven't been afraid to kind of talk about our stories and i think we've not been afraid to be quite vulnerable and alive to the fact that yes there are these stereotypes that are there but let's part those to one side and let's really get deeper about some of the issues and experiences that we have as black fathers we're talking about mm. trauma we're talking about kind of um childhood trauma that's been passed on from our parents in terms of their own experiences and how that's been that impacted on us growing up and how we're trying to avoid doing the same to our children and kind of trying to break that cycle whether it's you know going for therapy to kind of address those particular issues so we're not afraid to have those challenging conversations and i think it's quite refreshing for people to see that, that actually, you know, we're not mm. being closed off to that. And, you know, yeah. we're being quite open and, you know, we're more than happy to talk about our experiences in that way. Yeah, it's beautiful. Like you said the thing with the word they're refreshing. And one thing I think that's really refreshing about Dope Black Dads, um, forget that it's about black dads per, for a moment. And let's just talk about fatherhood. I like the, I love the way how you celebrate fatherhood. Yeah. And I think it's something that's really missed in society just in general, be that black, white, Asian, or whatever minority mm. you may come from. We always, whenever there's a child is being born or we talk about family or whatever, we always celebrate the mothers and rightly so, but we always talk about motherhood, how beautiful it is to be pregnant yeah. and that whole process. And it's always seen whilst we're now trying to change the narrative of, of whether fathers are providers or not yeah. or whatever the circumstances, we never really include fatherhood in the beauty yeah. of family and mm -hmm. in bringing up a child and and just and celebrating fatherhood and what a beautiful thing that I'm obviously I'm not a father myself but like as a son of someone of a father yeah. I hope he would say the same of like what a beautiful thing it can be to be yeah. a father and and I, I, that's what I find really refreshing about Don't Black Dads. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think that we, as a, as a society, celebrate motherhood and yet we completely overlook fatherhood? 
I think it, it kind of is born out of the societal structures that we've had for so long and it's been ingrained in our cultures and in our systems i think it's always been very much like mothers their role is to bear the children to raise the children they go off dads men your role is to you know it kind of goes back to the whole caveman time you know the hunter gatherer yeah. type of thing so you know you go find the food you provide for your family so i think that ideal has just manifested itself in different ways over the years and now we're at the stage where it's very much like well actually we don't need to we can't rely on those stereotypes anymore you know we we are talking about equality we're trying to make sure that there's equal access to everything for everyone so therefore you know mothers are you know you know women generally are more career-minded these days they are more kind of inspired about wanting to excel in different fields and rightfully so and I think that's kind of shifted that focus somewhat and it's interesting as well what I find is well obviously we've been dealing with the pandemic this year in 2020 and you know there's there were studies about how you know dads suddenly were kind of having to do more or actually starting to realize more about you know what their wives do and actually we did a thing in Father's Day this year where we kind of said you know let's take add like a take an hour each day add an extra hour to what we're doing and that will help to kind of lessen the load because that is the equivalent of you know mom's being able to not maybe doing two or three hours worth of stuff and I think it was very interesting kind of through the pandemic as a dad I mean I've always been a pretty much an active father from from day one and actually I remember it was a bit of a battle between myself and my mother-in-law because you know, I think she had not experienced mm. seeing somebody who wanted to really be kind of involved in everything and kind of wanted to be part of that decision-making process and wanting to be quite hands-on. Because, you know, I often hear stories about dads who've never changed a nappy before, but I was just like, mm. right, you know, this is it. And, you know, I'm getting to get involved. And for me, being a father, being, you know, parenthood isn't about, okay, let's have children and then suddenly it's for my wife to deal with everything. That's not what it's about. You know, for me, it's about us working together as a team. You know, my wife is successful in her own right. You know, she's she's a government lawyer. She's does, you know, she does amazing work herself. And, you know, it's not about me saying, well, okay, you need to put your career on hold and look after these children that we've brought into the world together while I go off and do stuff. No, it's actually about, okay, we're a team, we're a partnership. How can we work together so that we both can achieve what we want to achieve in our respective fields but also bringing up our children in the way that we want to bring them up as well so I feel like that narrative is is definitely shifted um and like you say I think generally with fatherhood I think people now are starting to kind of recognize a bit more but I still think we've got a long long way to go because I think people still do hold that perception that fathers are there to just kind of provide and I think for some dads to think to feel like it's enough if I'm making x amount of money every year we're living in a nice house you're going to nice schools you've got all these nice things and for a while actually I used to have that slight mentality because I was kind of a bit old school in terms of you know this is how I was brought up in terms of like from my dad was very much saying you know when you're a dad this is what you need to do and actually I've had a, a shift in the last year or so it's like actually that's not what it's about and you need to kind of be a lot more present to your family and kind of be a lot more present to what you're doing because otherwise the whole world will pass you by and you're like well 
you don't really have a relationship with your children as such. And it's mm. very much a material thing rather than an emotional um, bond between them. And that's kind of what we're trying to get away from. Umar, I just wanted to ask, you mentioned the narrative has changed, which I have just from an outsider, I, I would agree mm. with. But I'm pretty sure there's only two or maybe four countries. I know Sweden is one of them that have equal uh, time for paternity and maternity leave. And mm-hmm. I, I was just wondering, from your point of view, have even since you've become a father, have you seen a progress, uh, like a progression within the workplace in terms of their attitude towards facilitating this crucial stage for the child's development? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate because um, when my daughter was born, my eldest, so she was born uh, prematurely, so she was six weeks premature, and I remember. You know, my my paternity leave started, but they were very understanding about, you know, letting me have a bit more time off to kind of, you know, obviously manage that whole that whole situation because it was a bit of a traumatic, uh, a traumatic time of it. And I do think that workplaces are slowly starting to kind of recognize that a bit more. And I think it's more about fathers maybe taking a lot more of the initiative and saying, you know, these are my expectations. And I was very, very clear, you know, in past jobs where I've been like you know I've got kids so I've got a daughter I like to take her to school I've got a son I like to take him to nursery so for me work needs to fit around that I mean I'm happy you know maybe a couple of times a week if I obviously have to stick to a strict routine that's it is what it is and obviously you know my wife being able to do the drop-off and pickups as well but my children are part of my life so therefore you know my work needs to kind of fit around that and again this pandemic has been amazing because it's cut out the need to commute to work mm. it cut out the need to kind of have that rushy feeling that you have in the mornings and i was saying this to uh saying this to a couple of dads the other day at the school gates you know just how liberating it is to be able to work from home yes for six months it was crazy because you know you're trying to work whilst managing homeschooling and everything mm. else that comes along, you know, managing your emotions and mental health and whatnot. But since my kids have gone back into childcare and school in September, it's been a revelation because it's like, you know, you get up in the mornings and no longer am I having to think about, okay, I need to get up an hour before you guys because I need to get ready and make sure that I'm all set, get all your stuff ready, and then, you know, have that mad dash of, okay, let's get you to the nursery, drop you, drop you to school, drop the car back, run to the station to get a train at a specific time to get into the office or, you know, go see a client, do what you need to do. And then you're thinking about, you know, you get to midday, you're like, okay, well, I need to be out by 3.34 because I need to get on this train to get back to get to pick them up. Now it's just very much like, okay, well, I'm up at like six. Well, that's a lie because I don't ever get up at six. It's usually about half four or five. Um, I'll get up, I'll go for my run, I'll come back, get the kids up, shower get them changed breakfast and it's all just like calm and it's just you know you're just like you're moving along at a nice pace and it doesn't have that rushy feeling to it so for me personally I mean it's you know once this pandemic is over then you know I'm quite happy for it to continue in this way because I feel like it's allowed me to really be able to spend more time with my kids in the mornings um you know doing even basic things like being able to do more reading with my daughter uh, in the mornings, doing more activities in the in the evening when they get back home, and you're not having this constant pressure of, you know, you're clock watching all the time. So yeah, I think employers 
definitely the pandemic have had to adapt a lot more than probably ever before. Yeah, I think it's been a really good like reset button in in that and allow people to kind of get their priorities straight and and really value, see what it is that they value and then work around that rather than it being the other way around and trying to incorporate things that we value into Mm -hmm. the work system or whatever it may be. Before we bring up, um, talk in depth about how you bring up your kids, because I really want to get into that. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you, you, we had like a call um, a couple of weeks beforehand and uh you gave us like some really nice stories about how dope black dads supports each other and how you're a community of men who support each other in the hard times whether that just be a conversation whether that be financially or whatever it may be uh could you just kind of people who don't know uh, kind of give us maybe a few stories or a few examples of how it is that you help each other not just talking about the kids but how you help each other as as fathers to get through uh, if there's any if there's ever a difficult time I think one of the beauty of um, with Dope Black Dads, I mean, we've got a, a WhatsApp group where we've got about 175 people in that group alone. There's a Facebook group which has got a few thousand in there. And I think what's great is if people have an issue, they will just raise it. So it may be a case of, you know, I'm having this particular issue with my son or my daughter. I don't know how to approach it. Help type of thing. And then people will kind of chime in and give you know, their own experiences or their own examples and then kind of, you know, you can work through it in that way. I think the, the good thing about Dope Black Dads is we don't have, it's not like a set age range that we have. So it's not like we're all dads who are, you know, between 30 and 40. You know, we've got dads who are in their 20s, we've got dads in their 30s, up to dads that are in their 60s, 70s. So it's such a wide range of experiences that you have. And I think what's good as well is, you know, the fact that we're able to challenge each other and kind of change people's perceptions and views. So, you know, there might be those, you know, views about, you know, whether it's punish, like how you punish your children, um, you know, how you speak to it, how you speak to them and kind of approaching those things. But away from parenting, you know, we've had a lot of shares where people will kind of speak about their own personal vulnerabilities, whether it's around their own mental health, whether they are, you know, if they're struggling, like for me, for example, you know, I was diagnosed with um, reactive depression last summer uh, in July of 2019. And at that point, you know, I'd shared it with the group and people were, you know, were very supportive and kind of encouraging and, you know, telling me ways to, to manage it and kind of encouraging about, you know, the use of therapy to kind of explore things in a lot more detail. And actually, we really value as a group the concept of therapy itself because we think it's so important to be able to understand where you what you know where you are right now and how you kind of got there because there's a lot of childhood trauma that doesn't often get talked about there's a lot of things that have happened in your childhood which you know you kind of look back and you're like okay this will explain why I behave in this way as an adult and it's not until you go through that process that you kind of recognize ah, okay, so this experience or this happening to me is what has led to me behaving in this particular way. So for me, definitely, like I found during the pandemic, you know, done therapy myself um, and I was really able to kind of understand a lot of why, you know, certain things had happened and why certain things were happening and kind of understanding that in a lot more greater detail. And for me, it just means that when others have that similar type of situations you know you're able to kind of speak from first-hand experience and say you know 
yeah, okay, my therapist worked for me, but I'm not saying that it's going to work for everyone, but at least explore that concept um, and have that understanding. Because I think until you do that, you do tend to bury a lot of that childhood trauma and then it just manifests itself in the way that you parent, in the way that you deal with certain situations, which is which is not really good. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, it's commendable because I think, you know, a lot of most parents, to be honest, well, they were all brought up obviously in a different generation. Of course, they were, and so they were brought up when different norms were accepted. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of you know, my dad was very strict with me when I was younger, and we were, when I was for as I've got older, the relationship has got more um, kind of loving and on a friendship thing. But when I was younger, it was definitely brought up on a respect level yeah. rather than uh, you know, and that, that was because and that, my excuse was always, oh well, he's a man of his generation, mm-hmm. he's a man of his era, whereas you know. I think the 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 move to do therapy to stop those ripple effects at at, at your level and not allow allow them to kind of seep into your kids is a is a really commendable thing. That said, hmm. there's something that I wanted to, to question, which is one thing is being, for example, my dad being an Italian man and, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, maybe having a very strict parent and um, whatever, being strict with me or not being strict, this, that, and the other. The yeah. other thing is you said before, you spoke about how you didn't want, you know, your parents um, and their parents would have had um, gone through, you know, traumatic events, especially moving here if they were in the Rindroth generation or even mm-hmm. later. And your your generation now is trying to stop that happening mm-hmm. for your kids, trying to stop passing on that trauma. Mm-hmm. I wonder how how do you kind of tally? So my question is, how do you bring up two black children in England, which is still a predominantly white country? Mm. How do you bring them up and prepare them for ultimately? I mean, we'd love to imagine that we will, you know, in five years will be in utopia and racism doesn't exist. Mm. I think we all know, fortunately, that it will still be here. Um, and they will probably experience it in some form or another in their lifetime. Yeah. How do you prepare them for that? And at the same time, allow them to maintain a certain level of curiosity and a sense of possibility and not feel as if, oh, the cards are completely stacked against me. Like my dad's telling me that like people are going to, are going to maybe in job offers or whatever, look at me and because of my name or because of my skin color, mm. not hire me. So how do you kind of tally that balance and make them still really think, you know what, the world is my oyster, but it's my oyster with a few barriers, which I now have the tools thanks to my parents to overcome. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, I think, I feel like for me and my wife, definitely, you know, we're examples of people that have been able to overcome that. Um, you know, we're, we're both in, you know, we're both in decent professions. We're both doing, you know, good work. And, you know, we're both kind of community-minded in how we approach things. And I think for us, it's very much, you know, we don't want to kind of create this this situation where we're just telling our kids you need to look out for the white man that like he's 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 out no, to of type of thing. But it's also about trying to understand that sometimes things will probably happen, and when it does, it's kind of I suppose exploring it on a almost on a case by case basis. But I think for us, it's very much about raising them to recognize and love and appreciate their identity, who they are, their background, where they come from. You know, both me and my wife, we're Nigerian. Um, you know, I'm I'm from the north. My wife is from the south. I'm Muslim. She's Christian. You know, so my kids already, you know, they've got two different cultures that are there in, in them already. So, you know, they've got the Hausa culture, the north, 
the, the, you know, the Islamic side of things. They've got the Yoruba culture, the Christian side of things. So it's about them kind of being able to embrace and understand both sides to their family, both sides to their upbringing. And it's through that where they're, you know, we're able to kind of have those types of conversations and just be like, okay, cool. This is what you're about. We celebrate Eid in the same way that we celebrate Christmas. You know, we recognize, you know, Easter, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And it's just very much about, okay, this is all part of who you are. And it's also recognizing, yeah, we are, you know, we are living in England, you know, we live in Essex and it's like, you know, not saying that you're going to be an Essex boy or an Essex girl, but you know, this is where you're growing, you know, this is where you're growing up. This is who you are. This is all part of your identity. So it's just very much about kind of recognizing that it's a big melting pot. But when things do happen, it's also about having those conversations in in the most appropriate way possible. Like, funny enough, this morning my daughter was like, "Oh, you know, I know it's Black History Month because they've been learning about it in school." Um, but, you know, but we don't ever hear anything outside of that or, you know, all we ever hear about is white people all the time. And, you know, all, like, all, all we ever hear about is like white stories. So I was like, OK, well, there are you know lots of black stories out there. We do. There's um, a thing called Tata Storytime, uh, which is out on YouTube. And it's very much about kind of different actors reading like black orientated books, which my kids absolutely love. And I saw there was um, a thing on Netflix as well called Black Stories. Again, it was kind mm-hmm. of like people like Common, Tiffany Haddish were reading stories. And it's just very much like explaining to them, you know, there are black authors that are out there and kind of showing it to them and kind of encouraging them and, you know, just making them feel aware and, you know, making sure that they feel connected to their roots and, you know, not feeling in that way. Fortunately, I'd have to, you know, I'd say that, you know, none of my kids have experienced that level of, you know, we haven't really experienced any kind of racism yet. Uh, I'm not saying it's never going to happen because, you know, I think it's inevitable that it will, but when it does happen, then obviously it's a bridge that we will, you know, get to, but it's always about having those conversations and kind of, I suppose, preparing the ground so that when things do happen, it's like we have that open dialogue to be able to talk about it and explore and and try and move on from it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine how how hard it must be to try and prepare your kids for something that, like you said, thankfully yet hasn't happened, but almost inevitably will be. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it's definitely not an easy one. I mean, you spoke about the cultures there. Um, and we spoke before on the phone about Nigerian culture. I'm lucky enough to have grown up with Nigerian mm. um, and Nigerian people and have like some really good Nigerian friends. And it's just a beautiful culture. Um, mm. But one thing that they they would express to me is how sometimes it could be seen as some, or some parts of the culture, I should say, were quite antiquated. And I know you kind of tallied that as well with, uh, you know, the thought process behind jobs, for example, where yeah. traditionally speaking anyway, where, you know, it's like engineer, lawyer, doctor, those kind of prestigious jobs mm-hmm. as opposed to the more creative side of things and so on. And I wonder how to, it's kind of a two part question. One is how do you kind of bring them up to, maybe be slightly or to not feel like they have to have this pressure of the traditional Nigerian culture and live up to the, I know you're a lawyer yourself, but <laughs> not feel like they have to be a lawyer, for example, to be classed as a success in their parents' eyes. And then secondly, how do you bring them up to be both proud to be British and proud to be Nigerian at the same time? Yeah. So I think in, in relation to the first one, it's very much a case of, you know, right now we're just kind of like exploring, seeing what they are, 
interested in like my daughter she loves music she loves dancing my son is quite creative he likes to draw and that kind of stuff so it seems well I suppose they're five and two and a half so you know anything can happen between now and then I think for me and my wife it's very much about you know we're letting them explore their creativity you know my my daughter she does ballet she does gymnastics you know she's doing all those type of things so kind of opening her eyes up to different things and like my son's playing football at the moment um not been able to do much more than that because of the pandemic but hopefully when the pandemic starts to calm down we'll be able to introduce him to more things as well and it's very much just kind of exploring all of that and seeing what they are interested in and I think for us it's very much you know get a degree um you know something that you can that's transferable but we're not saying that you know you have to yeah just because mommy and daddy are both lawyers doesn't mean you know you need to become a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer too family trade yeah so but also i think it's like it's so different now because there are so many other ways in which a person can be successful without being in those kind of prestigious jobs anymore you know with the internet and social media the way that's kind of opened up the world generally I, i can understand from our parents generation them growing up it's like they've come to this country and it's very much like okay in order to be successful you need to be a barrister or a solicitor you need to be you know the chief consultant at a, at a medical hospital now it's like well people are successful as youtube influencers or you know instagram influencers and stuff I'm not saying that i'm saying you know that's what i want my kids to do but if it's something that they excel at and they're doing really well I'm not going to be the one, you know, neither myself or my wife are going to be like, well, no, you can't do that because it's not a traditional role. So we're very much about encouraging them. When it comes to the whole British and Nigerian side of it, again, it's very much about embracing both sides of it. So, you know, you're born here, you're born in, you're both born in London, you know, you're Londoners to, to start off with, you know, this is where you're at. And you kind of embrace that side of things, you know, embracing everything that is about Western culture but never forgetting what your roots are, what your heritage is. And again, how we do that is kind of celebrating Nigerian culture, whether that's through the clothes that we wear, the food that we eat at home, you know, even down to like language, how that's spoken and kind of trying to teach our children, speak Yoruba, speak Hausa, so that they they feel very much connected to the, the culture. And, you know, my daughter knows she's Nigerian. You know, she 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 recognizes that. She understands it. She she loves her jollof rice. She you know she loves her rice and stew. You know, even when I left them with the grandma, um, you know, a couple of hours ago, they, that's what they were having for their lunch. So, you know, it's very much like it's not a foreign concept to them. And we're make you know we're taking active steps to ensure that they know that this is their culture. They know that this is their heritage, and to kind of embrace that and never kind of forget that no matter where they are in the world mm. i feel like sometimes we spoke about this before didn't we that sometimes it can be almost like a an uh a, not a lost battle but you kind of never won fully or the other i'm like i respect you but i'm like obviously in in england all of my friends will refer to me as the italian friend and then yeah. i go over to italy to see my italian family and i'm the english cousin yeah and it's like it doesn't matter where i am i'm always one or the other and i think you said that the same when you went to nigeria you were like oh here's the here's the english uh yeah. here's the english coming over to visit yeah because even it's weird because i i speak Hausa fluently because i grew up um you know speaking at home and stuff and even though sometimes it's funny because people will look at me and they'll start maybe saying stuff or cussing me thinking that yeah. I'm, 
understand exactly yeah, what yeah. they say. And then when I speak back to them, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, um, I shouldn't have perhaps said that. Because uh, <laughs> yeah. so like, yeah, some family members will see you as that the rich English guy because apparently yeah. grows on trees here. Whereas over here, I'm like, nah, I'm you know, don't get me wrong, you know, living comfortably, but I'm not by any stretch of the imagination rich or you know have mm. six figures or anything like that. So it can be a bit of a can be a bit of a a nightmare kind of straddling that and it, it always whenever i go back to nigeria there's always that adjustment those few first few days when you're there and you're kind of like you're you're adjusting and it's not you're adjusting because you feel like an alien in in the country i always feel comfortable there because growing up i used to go there at least every couple of years so you know by the time i was 16 i'd probably gone to nigeria at least seven or eight times in my lifetime um so it was never about that but it's just more about kind of okay i'm not in london anymore and just kind of readapted <laughs> to being yeah. a small village and kind of for me the alien part of it is like okay i don't have access to fiber broadband right now or you know the network is a bit dodgy or electricity isn't going to be on all the time that's what the adjustment is but in terms of everything else it's like well no nah, these are my people so i don't ever feel like you know, I don't belong in any way, shape or form. So yeah, it's an interesting one to say the least. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting because the one thing that I really uh, like found interesting and, and different about the Nigerian culture compared to say uh, your, uh, Western cultures is the, the uh, aspect of Hansa, um, Yoruba and Ibo and the tribal nature of it and how the way that some people act or maybe slightly talk or what, or even mm-hmm. can, Oh, he's Ibo. Oh, that person does that. Oh, yeah, typical Ibo or typical Yoruba or whatever else. And it's interesting that um, that you've, like you said, your hands and your your wife's Yoruba, and mm-hmm. so you've got Muslim and Christianity in the same household. And I was wondering, how do you bring up your kids with? Because normally the argument nowadays is like in a even in a religious household is, do you bring up your kids indoctrinated into the the kind of family religion, mm-hmm. or do you allow them to? discover that slowly and surely and maybe they never will do maybe they never find the faith or want faith but with you how do you kind of teach them both sides of it do you just go really laissez-faire and just go you know what if they want to find more about muslim um, islam or christianity they can ask us and if they're not interested in it then we'll let them like we'll let them go how they want to go how does that work yeah so we definitely teach them about it um because i think it's important you know i pray five times a day so you know my kids will see me and i you know make a point of making sure that when i'm praying they see me praying right when the churches were open you know we had a community church so my wife would go with them and you know i would come along as well so it's kind of very much like we're trying to teach them that you know yes we're different religions although they both come from the abrahamic faith so it's kind of very similar in that respect but yeah you know it's very much about you know daddy believes in god mommy believes in god we just pray and we worship in different ways um and it's very much about you know my kids understand about well my daughter certainly understands about ramadan because she'll see me when i'm fasting and yeah. you know she knows about ramadan because she knows that eid follows and eid means present. <laughs> getting together and also like her cousins like on my wife's side so you know my wife's sister she converted into islam before she got married actually so 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 there's that that influence is already there as well uh, in terms of like my brother-in-law my sister-in-law so their daughters are muslim so there's also that kind of 
curiosity and we, yeah we just you know we teach them about it and obviously with christmas and easter you know they're very much are aware about it and i think for them yeah they recognize they're two different faiths. definitely for my daughter she does understand and she recognizes mm-hmm. that they are two separate faiths. and i think ultimately our goal our aim is to you know we're teaching them about it and it's for them to kind of make a decision i know they'll probably be muslims being like you're a bad muslim Umar, because <laughs> should be like traditionally it should be like they you know your family's raised in the man in the man's faith but i kind of take a very right. view that i feel you know with my kids because they are you know they've got both sides so you can explore it and they've got relatives on both sides so it's very much a case of it's not just at home so they know when they go to one house it's like the muslim like it's muslim but it's not even that different generally so it's not like you go to one house and it's very strict muslim no tv nothing whatever and then you go to another house it's like quite liberal or whatever it's nothing like that so i think because of that they're able to kind of see that in in, and kind of understand them as they grow older i'm sure there'll be more questions that are asked and it's up for that you know it's for them to decide and i've got no qualms whichever way they decide to go and i'm sure it's the same for my wife as well yeah so Go on, Jim, go on. It's it's nice to hear you say that because when Seb asked this question, I I, I understand the dynamic of the question because it, we mm. we often hear of the the split sides between these religions, but as you said, there are so many similarities as well. Like, like yeah. key similarities of that, we we believe in something bigger. We believe in like self discipline to make ourselves better in terms of these acts, or rituals, and yeah. there's 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 there obviously there is differences, but like really there's no reason why you couldn't live in the like grow up appreciating yeah. both you know i i, I think it's just 100 yeah, yeah I, I agree and i think it's um yeah it, it's sad because obviously i know there's been lots of wars in the in the past over kind of religion and you know yeah. my religion's better than your religion type of thing um but i think for us it's you know we're not trying to it's not a competition you know we pray in different ways we you know we both believe in god we just kind of believe in a different way of doing things and that's absolutely fine and i remember actually funnily enough because i think like for my parents they were you know very much like nah it doesn't work and i think it was kind of like it's a generational thing because they have seen like muslims and christians getting married and then maybe separating after a few years because it just you know for whatever reason it, it didn't work but i think we live in a much more tolerant much more open society now where you know that that is very much you know religion in in some cases yeah i can i can recognize you know some people will be you know part of the thing that holds them together is the fact that they're both religious and you know they will raise their household in a particular way whether it's in a islamic way or in a christian way and i completely get that but the world is also quite progressive and recognizes actually you know interfaith marriages do exist they do work and i remember even at our wedding because we got married uh we've been married for it'll be six years in december we've been together for nine years so you know we've kind of kind of shattered those illusions in terms of muslim can't stay together you know all that nonsense that old school people tend to have around that and we had like an interfaith minister so you know she kind of did uh part of our ceremony in a way that kind of reflected both of our religions Mm. so it was kind of demonstrating to the whole world that actually you know 
you can have these differences, but it's what it's these differences is what brought us together in the first place. And, you know, it should be celebrated rather than kind of admonished. For sure. I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I also wanted to ask, has your faith uh, changed or how has it changed since you've become a father? Because I know for a lot of people, of faith, they, it, there's usually like ebbs and flows and there's usually mm. some sort of questioning period. And then there's usually a big event in someone's life and then it kind of trajects them back into, um, I was wondering, did this change for you, whether it was when you got married or when you had your first child or, I, to be honest with you, I'd say faith for me has probably changed more in the last year or so, okay. to be honest with you. Like, I've always had an interesting relationship with religion. I think like my sisters have been all, like, my sisters and my mum and dad were supremely religious. I kind of rebelled against it a little bit when I was in my, kind of in my formative years. Not that, you know, I've never drank alcohol, so it wasn't like I was rebelling in that way. Um, mm. But it was just kind of like really questioning, oh, does this really is this really real? Does this really exist? You know, this is, you know, what is this religion flex? And I still identified as a Muslim. I still did Ramadan and, you know, celebrated Eid and stuff, but I was kind of questioning it. I suppose probably in the last year, I've really kind of taken a very different mantra because I kind of felt, again, with my depression diagnosis, I kind of felt like, like I'm almost wandering through life a bit aimlessly and you know what is my purpose yeah I've got obviously I've got my children and I've got my wife but you know it, I'm, I'm identifying myself as a Muslim but I'm not really doing that properly like you know I, I do Ramadan and I observe that for 30 days no problem but then for the rest of the time it's like well what are you doing mm-hmm. and I kind of really kind of questioned myself and then you know started praying a lot more and kind of started praying and doing five times a day again and kind of asking for things and you know kind of praying for forgiveness praying for new opportunities to arise and actually you know I feel like through that I have started to get new opportunities I do feel like I have been getting forgiveness and it's kind of strengthened my resolve in that in a in a in a, in a funny way so it's well not even in a funny way but it's just kind of really strengthened my resolve in that and actually you know what yeah I'm not going to mess around with this anymore because I think it does work that the power of prayer is powerful. I'm not going to turn this into like a preaching session. To me, this is what I've kind of experienced. And I do really kind of believe in that. So yeah, I just kind of like, you know, I run with it now. Um, And I've, you know, I observe five times a day prayers, you know, I don't miss them. I make sure I get up first thing in the morning, you know, it was like four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning during the summer months to get up and pray uh, and make sure I do, you know, the other four at various points of the day. So to me, it's been more maybe in the last year that it's kind of really uh, deepened. And I don't know whether it's because I'm getting older as well now, because uh, I'm 35. So kind of on the fast track to 40. Uh, I suppose it's like, yeah, you've got kids, you've got wife, you've got family, you've got job. What what is your, What is your purpose? Aside from all of that, what is kind of your wider purpose in life so i think having that recognition and understanding that a bit more now has definitely deepened my my resolve in it you you spoke about the generational um kind of changes in mentality towards religion and 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 growing up in a certain religion or or whatnot and one of the key things that i realized if i was to compare that my nigerian friends to my white friends be that italian be that irish be that english whatever it may be is that a lot 
almost all of my like white friends, they kind even if they were brought up. I mean, I was brought up in a Catholic environment, as you can imagine, being Italian. I'm pretty sure Jim was as well um, in Ireland in some sense. And then we we kind of a lot of the white people we kind of just eventually a lot of us go nah i'm all right thanks uh i'll find my spirituality or faith or whatever it may be in where in a different way yeah. i think a big thing to do with that is i remember i went once to a pentecostal church with my friend michael shout yeah. out michael if he's listening. and i thought it was i thought it was a joke when he took me because i've never seen anything like it and to me it wasn't what church was because yeah. it was two thousand people I thought he was taking me to a concert or something. I thought it was genuinely, I thought he was winding me up. And it was yeah. 2,000 people. And then when we went there, there was dancing, there was action, there was real, like, a sense of life. Mm. Whereas when I would go to, like, my Catholic, whatever, you would go there and you, um, um, sometimes it was hard to stay awake. It really <laughs> was. This, this was the complete opposite. This was, the, I think, my parents, even though, like I said, they're Catholics, but they weren't really believers. We mm. went and they, they even decided to be reborn as Pentecostal Pentecostalist. And then they had like the, the father came out and oh, it was a whole thing. And I was like, wow, this is the difference I, I guess. But one of the things I understand is that the, my, my Nigerian friends, like you said, sometimes there's, there's ebbs and flows. And when they were maybe younger, sometimes they wouldn't find, kind of follow it as religiously or so on and so forth, but they always, it always stayed with them and they, they always had a faith and they were very clear on it. And if, if anything good ever happened, they would always thank Jesus and everything else. Yeah. And I wondered, I wondered if because it's so ingrained in the culture, so every Sunday you go to mass and this, that, and the other, and that's where you meet everyone in the church and this, that, and the other. I wonder if they even have, like, if it's even a possibility for them to renounce religion or whatever, or faith and just go, you know what, I'm just going to go on my own way. Like, so you said with your kids, you, you're happy for them to decide either way, Christian mm-hmm. or Muslim. Mm-hmm. But why haven't they decided neither? Once they said, Dad, you know what? Like, I respect it, but that's just, just not for me. I don't believe in it. It's not really my, it's not my gig. Mm. I suppose it would be, again, it's like with anything with parenthood, it's about having that conversation and kind of trying to understand what their rationale is. You know, do they feel like they've made an informed decision or, you know, has there been something that's happened to make them to make them think that? Because, you know, I, I remember being a Muslim, black male, living in London during the height of 9-11 and then, you know, the 7-7 bombings. Yeah, it's it a bit of a peak time uh, to be to be Muslim around that point. And that kind of, you know, it really challenges your faith at, at that point because people are looking at you. It's bad enough people are looking at you because you're black and you're a man. But, you know, when they throw in, oh, your name's Umar. Oh, uh, Muslim, yeah? Um, so kind of like, you know, start having those other connotations that are attached to it it becomes a bit of a, a bit of a problem. And, you know, I suppose, you know, stuff like that will make you kind of challenge or kind of repress your feelings towards that particular religion because of the way that the rest of society is looking down on you about it. But I think for me, what I've realized is it's about kind of having that strength of conviction and strength of character to be like, you know what, I don't care what anyone else has to say about it. This is what I believe. This is how I feel about it. And if it makes me feel like a much better person and I'm doing good and I'm not harming anyone by having these beliefs, then it's all good. And I think, you know, like I say, for my kids, it's very much like trying to understand if that was the case, you know, why they felt the way that they felt. And even like, you know, I'm not even if both my kids decide actually we want to be Christian, I'm not going to sit there and be like, well, why not Islam? Like, you know, it's if you that's the informed choice that you've made. 
I respect that. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to force you to do something that you don't want to do. And I think because religion has played such a major role in black countries generally, you know, whether it's Islam in Western Africa, uh, Western Northern Africa, whether it's Christianity in the South and East of Africa, it's always been kind of at the, the root of, of families and kind of the root of society. So everything kind of revolves around the church or the mosque. So in a way, I'm not surprised that when people have come over to this country, whether it's the Windrush generation or the African generation in the 70s, 80s, they've brought that belief system with them. And again, they've probably leaned on that to help them get through the tough times as well. So, you know, maybe the racism that they would have experienced, maybe the injustices and inequalities that they would have gone through, you know, they would have leaned on God or Allah at those particular junctures to help them get through it. And because they've got through it and they've raised their kids in that way, it's kind of like, well, you know, this is what he's done for me. Because very often, like, I have conversations with my dad and he'll be like, you know, there's a lot of tough times that you don't know about from when you were growing up, a lot of stuff that was going on. But I leaned on God and, you know, he was able to kind of see me through. And when you have those kind of real life experiences and those real life conversations, like, okay, well, I can see that. So mm-hmm. religion is one of those things that it just gets passed down. But again, we're now living in an age where, you know, you've got the super highway of information that is the internet. So therefore, you know, people, children, society can explore so many different things. You know, I've learned about so many other different faiths. All I, you know, going to school, all I knew was Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Christianity and Islam, the six religions. You know, as I'm growing up, I'm learning about, you know, Zoroastrian uh Baha'i, you know, so many other, you know, faith, which I didn't know about growing up because nobody talked about it and nobody was, well, people were practicing it, but it just wasn't widely known. So, you know, for me, as long as you're not doing something that's harming anyone else, then it's not an issue for me, whichever way you decide to go. But it's just always good to kind of just understand, you know, how you got to that decision really. And yeah, that's it. For sure. I wanted to talk about um, the mental health aspect of dope black dads and mm. being a black dad. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking to one of my friends and we were just talking about like mental health and how it's evolved and just like for, for men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously the, the, the thing is, you know, men in general, we're expected to, or I think we have our own expectations that we, mm. you know, we should solve our own problems, this, that, and the other. There's no point in reaching out and all this kind of nonsense, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're trying, that's what we're trying to fight against, right? That's why we have these discussions and so on. But I was talking to my friend and he um, came up with a, a kind of an interesting point, which he said, yeah, for sure that's the case. But then he said, like, with black men, there's almost like an added layer. Mm-hmm. And he said like it's almost twofold he said like it depends so the, the added layer can be either your your culture can they can often be a lot more traditional so even like your culture will like uh then less liberal and so they won't you know your father or your grandfather whatever it may be that's just not even a, a thing mental health doesn't even exist yeah. but then he said the other thing which i can see but then he said the other thing which really interested me was um that sometimes with with racism and the way that like it's so embedded even into this into our culture that sometimes we can't even see it so much it's such a part of the matrix that we can't even actually step away and see what it is mm-hmm. and he said you know for example if you look at like what the stereotype of a black man is it's like what the stereotype of a man is but just accentuated times 50 um and then like we got so he started talking about for example like if you look at footballers 
we all celebrate black footballers. Of course, there's been so many who are amazing, mm-hmm. but we, all, we when we celebrate them, we talk about their physical attributes, right? Yeah. We don't talk about how cerebral they are. Whereas you talk about Dennis Burkamp, for example, you don't talk about his physical attributes. You talk about oh, what thinker of the game he was. Yeah. And then we were talking about how that leads into, for example, when a black former black player wants to get a football manager's job, mm-hmm. it's a lot it's often a lot harder because it's like, yeah, but you were just good because you're like big and strong, not because you're a thinker of the game. Whereas Pep Guardiola, oh, he's a real thinker. He's an ideologue, so he can get the he can get the best jobs. And he was saying this, how it kind of all links was he saying black men sometimes we actually believe in that own like we don't even see it as a form of racism we're so ingrained in it we think of ourselves as these like ultra um masculine men because that's what we've been told a black man is you know we're these super strong blah 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 and so for us it's like we have to kind of step away from the matrix Mm. see that all of that nonsense isn't actually true that we're Mm. just as much of a sentient and thinking being as any other white man or asian some of the best thinkers in the world are black men. Look at America Barber. And then from then, we can actually then talk about mental health. But until we kind of realize that, that we are these thinkers and that we do actually have feelings and that we aren't these brutes, yeah. it's almost impossible to even bring in mental health because we don't even realize that we have, that's a, even a thing ourselves, whether we're from a different generation or whatever. And I was mm-hmm. wondering, have you ever thought about that? And how does that happen? Like, how does that kind of, I don't know, how does that, um, play out in dope black dads and, and with your other whether they're dads or not in, in, in black men who who have problems and maybe don't even realize that they're actually suffering with it themselves yeah no i think definitely i mean the role of kind of male masculinity and how that plays out you know over uh, in society and kind of how society views a black man definitely is something that we've explored a lot of and we continue to explore in in dope black dads because it is this viewpoint that society holds of us because that's what's been perpetuated for so many generations. You know, if you're black and you're an athlete, then, you know, automatically you're going to be the strongest, fastest, hardest hitting person on the field or on the, on the track. And these, these kind of these, these um, expectations. And I think black men generally, we're kind of, we're put into one or two categories, either you're an elite black man, or you're a mediocre black man. And it's kind of like there's not nothing kind of in between, which is not good because, you know, you yeah, there's mediocrity everywhere. And sometimes it's actually it's okay to be mediocre. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we don't have, we don't ever hear about this issue, you know, within white culture to say, you know, there's a lot of mediocre white people that are out there, but you don't <laughs> hear people kind of talking about it. And I've experienced that in the workplace where, you know, you'll see somebody who's mediocre and you're thinking, how the hell is this person on a six-week yeah. salary doing what they're doing and, you know, they're coasting through life. Whereas, you know, a mediocre black man is probably nowhere near anything like that. Mm. And so it's kind of like there's this, there's almost this need for society to constantly label black men and kind of put us in these boxes because it kind of doesn't know what to do with us. And you're right in saying that until we start to recognise that actually, you know, as a black man, we have feelings too. Like, you know, we have these burdens that we carry and uh, again part of that comes from what has been told to us by parents and previous generations part of that is what society 
has held up, uh, has held us up through to be, you know, I've got white friends and I think, you know, I look at them and I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure society hasn't put certain expectations on you to be in a certain job, to be earning a certain amount of money, to be doing X, Y, and Z. You know, this whole concept of what we were talking about before about, you know, you need to be a lawyer, an engineer, a doctor. I, you know, I don't know how often these conversations take place in white households, you know, for young, for young white men and women as they're growing up. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's a case of very often a lot of them will have freedom of choice and it feels like being black, you don't necessarily have um, much freedom of choice. And I think with those black dads, as you say, part of it is about celebrating, inspiring, healing um, and educating black men. And part of the healing part of it is kind of encouraging us to open up a lot more and kind of speak about our vulnerabilities and not be afraid and kind of creating that safe space, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on the WhatsApp group to kind of say, you know what, I feel like rubbish today. You know, I'm feeling down. I don't know what's going on. You know, help. Like, And I think for so long what's happening is as black men, we will have these feelings, but we don't communicate it to anyone. We don't communicate it to our partners. We don't communicate it to our friends. We just kind of bottle it up. And, you know, it, then it, it manifests itself in different ways, whether, you know, you explode because you're angry um, or you just, you know, you just go off and you're just trying to compute because you don't know how to deal with it. And I think what I found is for us as a group, it, there's power in sharing how you're feeling because there's that power of people being able to resonate with it in different ways. And there's, you'd be so surprised at how many other black men in the group kind of will feel the same way. You know, somebody will send a voice note out. Uh, and I've done this, you know, I've sent voice notes out where I've literally been crying and I've sent a voice note out. I would never have done that a couple of years ago because it was, yeah. it felt like the done thing to do. But, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd expose my vulnerabilities. I'll allow myself to be vulnerable because I feel... I'm in a safe space to be able to do that. I remember just at the end of summer, it was, um, I had a really rough week of it, uh, last week of August. And I just remember like, it just felt really tough. And I'd sent a voice note out on the group and um, a friend of my, one of the dope black dads, Chris Becks, who lives out in Melbourne in Australia, he was living in London and uh, he's out in Australia and probably be setting up the Australian chapter of DBD uh, before long. And unbeknownst to me, he had reached out to the group um, and said, you know, if people are around, you know, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly, maybe a couple of hours after I send that note, I'm in the middle of work. Suddenly I get a knock on the door. It's one of the dope like dads. I'm like, oh, wow. And it's like, you know, could tell you weren't feeling it. Just wanted to come around, check on on you. I'm like, that's really great. I appreciate it. Uh, just about to go into a hearing because I'm I got caught. Do you mind coming back in a couple of hours and that's all right? <laughs> and he literally he did. So he went off, he came back, and then literally half an hour later, I had another five dads came through, you know, knocked on my door. They came through. We had uh like we ate five guys, you know, Marvin was in within that group, you know, he came down, we had burgers and chips and you know we were just sitting in my living room just obviously this is let me make it very clear this is pre the whole rule of six before anyone starts playing anything. <laughs> um, and this was when it was cool in the summer uh, end of august 
you can go back and check the legislation if you don't believe me. But uh, yeah, so, you know, had these guys that were in my house and we were just chilling. We were catching jokes, kind of sharing, being vulnerable and kind of just being able to talk through it. And that for me was the strength of what this brotherhood is about. And I ultimately, I do see it as a brotherhood. I grew up being the eldest child in my household. I had two younger sisters, so I never had a brother. So I, don't, I didn't know what that experience was like kind of growing up. And, you know, I had a decent relationship with my dad, but not to the point where, you know, I'd feel like I could talk about mental health in that way because, you know, it's like, well, you know, if you're feeling a bit low, it's just like, just get on with it because that's what your parents did. But now it's like I've been exposed to a new train of thought and actually it is okay to be vulnerable it is okay to express yourself and that uplift that I had after they had gone was amazing you know I felt so great about myself again um because and I and I wouldn't have got that feeling if I hadn't shared in the first place so I think yeah. it's so important to be able to share and express your views and your feelings and I think the more we start doing that as black men and making it okay and acceptable and actually as men in general uh yeah being able to do that, then I think it, it kind of will normalise itself in a lot more because there's a huge mental health agenda that's going on at the moment. You know, people are talking about, you know, let's speak about mental health. And I think once a pandemic is over, the next big pandemic is going to be on mental health. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, let's start talking about it from now uh, so that when it does happen, we know how to kind of start to deal with it and challenge those notions that men don't talk yeah for sure i you said a, a few real interesting things that i mean i from a very early age luckily having grown up with these british nigerian um come people coming down from london all the way to lincolnshire and you could see how differently even subconsciously how differently the teachers would would treat them and how excellency was it wasn't a choice it was the only option mm-hmm. because any other th- anything else you were just completely written off whereas i for example i was always a fairly lazy student i would try to pull out the bag last minute and yet my teachers would almost because i could do that and they've seen me do it they would almost semi allow me to do that whereas mm-hmm. with my other friends who are black who had the exact same ability if they did that they would just be called out on it straight away oh you're lazy this that and the other and like so when i would talk to them there's like said like excellency is not an option for us like it is the only option it's not like we can choose whether we want to be and it's so interesting for people who think maybe that we're kind of like or that you're egging this on or what that is doing it over the top it really isn't that way and what you're saying is exactly right like it really is you kind of have to be in this in this world that we live in right now as a black man or black woman excellent yeah. otherwise completely get written off and mediocrity as white people is is definitely more accepted for sure it is which is ridiculous like you said we're humans so there's going to be there's going to be mediocre black people there's going to be bad black people there's going to be amazing black people just what it is just because you're part of the human race just like any other race but for some reason if you want to get if you want to feels like you if you want to get anywhere in this world you have to be excellent and the other thing you said which i don't want to name them but one of my best friends or my best friend Mm. he was black nigerian he's the one who introduced me into all into the nigerian culture mm-hmm. but yet he wasn't what you would class as stereotypically black he wasn't fast he didn't play football yeah. he was an aura he was a, he was more effeminate in his mannerisms yeah. and so a much more delicate soul mm-hmm. and what was interesting was it wasn't necessarily the white people at school being like oh man you're not even black like what is this like why aren't you doing for, why aren't you rapping every jam? i mean it wasn't that it was actually a lot of the black people at boarding school 
who will give it to him. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, and you're like, you're an Oreo, this, that, and the other. And he found that really hard when he was younger. He's definitely got his way, he's, he's, he's accepted who he is now, and he's found a great group of people who accept him as well. But when he was younger, he, we'd, he'd have conversations with me about how he felt like he was kind of letting the black side down or whatever it was because he didn't live up to these stereotypes that were even held within his, his black friends. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, oh, that again white people don't like we i i empathize with them because i saw it happen mm-hmm. but i don't empathize to a certain level because there's that's never ever going to happen in a white group of friends like oh man what what are you doing you, you're acting too black like that doesn't make sense yeah. we would never say that to someone because as yeah. a white person, you have the liberty to be whoever you want to be yeah and interesting to see how actually it wasn't necessarily white people trying to put my friend in a box it was actually some other black people who were trying to do it to him you know yeah. I, I can definitely relate to that because i remember when I was in secondary school, like garage was, you know, we're talking in the late nineties, early two thousands. So, you know, garage was the big thing for me. Yeah. I was just like, mm, I'm not really feeling this. Like, it's just now yeah. I love it. Well, I, you know, I love it. Put on so solid crew, and I'll be up there. But back then, <laughs> it just wasn't for me. And actually, you know, the people, the circles that I was moving in, people were listening to like Limp Biscuit, Corn, Linkin Park you know, Metallica, that type of thing. And I really love that music. And even now, I still like, you know, people get surprised. Wow, you, you like Metallica? I'm like, yeah, black people can enjoy rock music as well, you know? It's not, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. an exclusive um, genre to white people. In the same way that I don't ever say that grime is exclusively a black thing. You know, I know lots of white people that love Stormzy, you know, that love Kano. And that's cool as well. And I, and I think I used to try to, I used to battle a lot of that stereotype because I, I think, it's partly to do with, you know, growing up in East London and having a dad that used to work for the BBC World Service. And I think he was trying to almost, I suppose I spoke much better than a lot of my counterparts did. So I didn't really sound like I was from East London, although I could do if the situation called for it. Um, so I think it kind of felt, you know, I never, it's weird because I never felt, um, I never felt picked on as such, but there definitely was those subtleties. And I remember when I got to university, it was a lot more apparent there because I point blank refused to join the African Caribbean societies for the first couple of years of my time there because I was just like, I don't want to be pigeonholed as because I'm black and I go to a university where black people are a minority, that this is where I need to kind of Lay, lay my hat because I grew up living in Newham which is the one of the most diverse boroughs in the whole of Europe meant that my circle of friends was diverse as well so you know I had friends that were Indian that were Chinese that were black that were white so for me the whole concept of just sticking with one particular group of people was an alien concept to me because that's not how I kind of grew up and it's only because I became president of the Law Society in my final year and I was kind of reaching out and kind of engaging with other people that then, you know, started to get a bit more involved with the ACS society. But even then, I still felt like a bit of an outsider looking in because it just felt like, okay, I'm maybe not as, <laughs> you know, kind of, I felt like my blackness was challenged quite a lot um, because I was still liking, you know, some of my new metal music. Yes, I was liking R&B and hip hop, but maybe not as much as the next guy. I remember I, I dated a, a Ghanaian girl when I was at uni and it, I suppose that's when my blackness in inverted commas was, was kind of, was, was topped up <laughs> in, in that sense. Um, 
yeah, so I think it's, 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 it's definitely interesting. And I think there's a lot of issues that can happen within like the black community itself. And, you know, sometimes you have it with Africans and Caribbeans and kind of the, the rivalries that go on there and, and everything that kind of comes along with that. And, um, yeah, I think people will see you in a particular way. And I think people will kind of take me for however they want to take me. I'm somebody that, you know, I love my hip hop and I, and I love my grind, but I also love R and B and I love pop music and I'm not ashamed to say any of that, you know? So it is, it is what it is. And it is kind of part of what makes me who I am. Really, So it's all good. Yeah. Personally, it took me a long time to fully accept that I love pop music as well. So I'm, I'm um, I kept going to cheap nights at uni, so it's just like, okay, yeah, clearly I like this stuff. So. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. <laughs> exactly. It might, it must be quite wild for you now, though, to see like on the flip side to see loads of white people now like absolutely love Afrobeat and all of that, all yeah. of that jazz. You're in for it. Like I, lo- I have like an African playlist, like traditional African music, and I can't yeah. understand a word they're saying, obviously. But <laughs> I lose myself in it, and it, I always think like, I wonder what would happen if like some guy who actually understood the music would listen to like see me listen to this yeah. and like dancing in my stupid way and just like have a little chuckle to themselves like wow <laughs> we have come far we have come far in reality definitely definitely it's all good and i think you know I, I i say you know what you like what you like you know there's no hard and fast rule in saying you know this belongs to this culture this belongs to that culture and actually you know if you like if the music is good if the beats are good you know, I don't care. Like, I don't care where it's from. I, I like it. Uh, you know, it's not, I'm not going to not like something just because it doesn't have an ounce of blackness to it. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I just think that's, that's just stupid. Uh, you know, yeah. it's changed. So you are exposed to so much more now than you ever were before. For sure. And I think one of the great things as well, like that I think African cultures are doing a lot better is actually selling or exporting their culture, yeah. so to speak. So for example, it sounds stupid, but as an Italian, you, I go down any street and I know I'm going to see an Italian restaurant. That's just facts. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a good Italian or not, that's a different story. But I know that they will be trying to pretend to be Italian. Jim knows that if he sees any pub, they're guaranteed going to have a four-leaf clover and a Guinness sign outside of it. That's just how it is. But like, and what, I'm, what I've seen now, especially in London, obviously, but kind of actually branching out from London, it's happening in places where you wouldn't expect it. Mm. Oh, no. Nigerian restaurants, Senegalese restaurants, and this, that, and the other. And what's beautiful that I think is that they're not populated by Nigerian or Senegalese customers exclusively. Yeah. Right. You will see a ginger person in there chowing down on some jollof rice or eggsy soup. Yeah. It's like that's a beautiful thing to see because it's like then you really, I think you get an appreciation for the culture and you can actually start to understand people more and see them as like, oh, Umar, like he's from Nigeria and in Nigeria they this stuff whereas rather than being like oh umar's from nigeria where's nigeria it's in africa isn't it somewhere that wherever and they don't have any idea or any understanding yeah like i've seen a lot of it in the last like maybe five years and i'm even talking about i live in spain and i've seen it like there's a whole there's a whole borough in spain where like in madrid and it's full of like all these different african restaurants from different countries Mm -hmm. and they're telling you it's there's there's a lot of spanish people going in there and it's a great thing to see i think definitely and i think you know Food is something that brings people together as well. It's kind of that that understanding of other people's cultures and, and that kind of appreciation of good food. And I think if the food is made right, you're gonna you're gonna appreciate it. And probably the reason why you ain't seen a lot of Senegalese and Nigerians in these restaurants is because we're in your Italian restaurants or your <laughs> 
there's that, <laughs> it's that, there's that mutual appreciation because me yeah. personally, to be honest, you know, if I'm going to be going out, I probably won't go to a Nigerian restaurant as such because yeah. I want to. There's so many, there's so much other options out there. Yeah, you know, of course. Off rice, then usually, you know, my wife will make it, and uh-huh. you know, and I'm not just saying this because she's my wife, but. It, <laughs> Not my favorite jollof rice. So it's like, why am I going to go eat it somewhere else when it's not going to come up to the standards that my wife makes it at? So, you know, yeah. it's one of those things. And, and like I say, you want to experience other foods and other cultures, you know, so where it's Japanese, Turkish. Um, right. I love Middle Eastern food because uh, I just love everything about that culture. So for me, it's like, you know, that's what I would tend to gravitate towards. So, but yeah, I think it's great to see that this is, things are changing and, you you know, and I like to, and I like hearing the fact that it's exploding outside of the UK as well. You know, seeing, hearing about it happening in Spain, and I'm sure it's happening in a lot of other countries um, as well. And actually, I know, like in Nigeria, we're suddenly seeing uh, a, a large amount of like American or British style restaurants that are now gravitating towards that way because I, I don't think there's a McDonald's actually in Nigeria. It's probably one of the few places in the world that doesn't have. Oh, they should say, keep it like that, please keep it. Like- <laughs> <laughs> it's actually yeah i think it's one of the few places, but yeah it, it's kind of like you know they're starting to especially because you're now getting a lot a large expat community that are coming back so you know they want some of those creature comforts that they've been used to in america or in the uk so you you are starting to see a lot of those restaurants now making their way uh across um across to to nigeria and other west african countries as well so yeah i think uh sharing is caring for sure <laughs> absolutely all right, man. It's been such a wonderful conversation. And just before I close, it wouldn't be an Earthly Delights podcast if I didn't ask a final two-part question. Um, yes. <laughs> um, the, the first part of the question is, I, I wanted to know if, I'm sure you have, but if, if you haven't, it would be cool to peruse it with us. What was like the biggest revelation that uh, you have come across since being part of Dope Black Dads? Or what is the greatest thing that you've learned? And the second thing is we want to hear like plans for the future for the black lads. You, you mentioned that um, perhaps your friend is starting it in Australia. We'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So I think for me, the biggest revelation has been that brotherhood element and actually being part of something where you've got so many other black men, black fathers that are in the same or similar position as you and having that kind of shared experience. So a lot of these dads I've never met. You know, I don't know. All I know is the conversations that we've had on WhatsApp or on Facebook or when we've had our sharing calls. And I think for me, the one thing that probably stands out the most is what happened, like I said, a couple of weeks ago when I was feeling super low and suddenly six dads turn up to my house, you know, and they come and see you. And that to me is kind of like, that's the strength of brotherhood right there. We've got a situation where one guy, um, you know, is having issues with employment at the moment and he needs money um, to get a solicitor. He can't afford it. Set up a fundraising page. We've all donated. He's hit the target. He's going off. He's going to get sorted. You know, that to me is what Don't Black Dads is about. That's what it's about, you know, the brotherhood. And it's kind of like, you know, we're recognising when we're having times of need as a brotherhood, we're coming out and we're batting for each other. We're not trying to knock each other down. We're trying to lift each other up. We're trying to keep each other up because ultimately, you know, we want to make sure that we are demonstrating and we are active and great 
fathers to our children's lives, whether we are with our partners, whether we're separated, no matter what the situation is, that we are doing exactly the best that we can for our kids. And ultimately that starts from us. You know, if we're the best version of ourselves, then we'll be able to be the best dads possible to our children. In terms of what's going to happen in the future, you know, we are kind of, we're here, there and everywhere right now. You know, we're doing lots of stuff um, on Facebook at the moment. You know, it's been obviously Black History Month. So we've been doing lots of different talks um, around that. We're part of the Dope Black uh, CIC as well. So that's a charitable company that incorporates the other aspects of dope black so you've got dope black mums dope black women and dope black man men and also dope black queers as well which launched um a few uh about a month ago now so you know we're branching into so many different things so it's kind of like we're expanding that conversation we're basically saying listen we're not just limited it's not just a conversation about dads you know the mums are doing fantastic work i know you know they do their weekly podcast same as we do you know the men are just getting going the women you know being led uh fantastically as well and the db the dope black queer section as well so it's kind of like we're expanding our reach and we're kind of demonstrating there are different elements to being black so it's not just being about a father or a mother you know there's the lgbt community there are men there are women and we're kind of like i suppose spreading our reach as far as we possibly can and hopefully it's been obviously a tough year because of the pandemic for, for a variety of reasons. and But that hasn't stopped our growth in any way, shape or form. If anything, we've learned how to adapt mm-hmm. and, you know, we've kind of strengthened our community through this uh, pandemic. And hopefully once we are back in having that ability to meet face to face again, you know, you'll, st- you'll definitely be hearing lots more about the work that we're doing as a community, as a group, as an organisation in the wider community for many more years to come that's great oh, man that's fantastic Thanks. isn't it that's fantastic <laughs> like it's i think that we kind of brings the 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 you know the expression is it it takes a village to bring up a child mm. i feel mm-hmm. like we can maybe even expand that to be like it takes a village to maintain a healthy mind in a man human or a man woman or child you know um but yeah i think that that, that expanding out and that brotherhood that you said is such a valuable thing mm-hmm. um before we let you go mark you've kind of spoken on it a bit there but how do you keep on top of your mental health what are your what are your top tips that maybe someone listening can uh, kind of try and incorporate into their lives uh, so I would say, I mean, one thing I like to do, keep a journal. Uh, so, mm. you know, if you, if you can do like a daily journal, I've got like an electronic version. So kind of just keeping a tab on like how I'm feeling, any anything that's happened, good or bad throughout the day. Exercise, 100% is key. You know, I've lost a few stone <laughs> since the start of this pandemic. And that's because, you know, I, I took up the couch to 5K uh, just before the pandemic actually kicked yeah. in. And now I'm, you know, quite comfortably running 10, 15 Ks, um, you know, three, four times in a week. So, you know, and that for me, running is my therapy in terms of getting out on the open road first thing in the morning, headphones on, whether I'm listening to a podcast or listening to some music and just kind of going for it. And that to me helps to clear up my head and, you know, and everything that's going on and kind of lets me set myself straight. And also talking you know it's it's so important to talk and it's so important to share you know how you're feeling no matter how minuscule you might think it is you know when somebody asks how are you doing if you know you're not okay don't just say yeah i'm okay <laughs> and kind of mm. leave it at that you know just 
yeah, I'm feeling a bit rubbish today. Um, yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that and kind of taking ownership of that. I used to be guilty of not saying that's how I felt. I'd be like, yeah, I'm okay. But then actually my demeanour and everything around me was suggest yeah. otherwise. Now it's like, you know what? I'm not okay because I'm tired. You know, I had a rubbish night's sleep. So I just feel like, I just feel like crap. And, you know, I'm just going to need a minute. Uh, or, you know, I'm not good because I'm quite stressed out because of work. But just kind of expanding on that yeah uh, you know it's not i'm not you're not necessarily asking for that person to provide you a solution you know that's not necessarily what it's about it's just about you having that ability to share this is how i feel um and through doing that you know people say a problem shared is a problem halved and it's true because that person might that you're sharing with whether it's your partner whether it's your friend family member you know, they might be able to give you some words of advice that could help that situation that if you'd never shared, you'd probably still be running through it in your head. So those are my top three. So, you know, journaling, exercising, sharing. Beautiful stuff. And for anyone who's listened to this, who wants to get involved with Dope Black Dads or find out some more information, you've got a website. Can you just um, tell them like the link? We'll put them in the show notes anyway, but the link so that they can find out all your social media and all that jazz. Yeah, so if you go on www.dopeblackdads.com, you'll find us there. If you type in Dope Black Dads, you will find us on every single show, social media platform. So we're on Insta, we're on Twitter, we're on LinkedIn, and we're on Facebook. So, you know, if you're somebody who's a black father that wants to get involved, you know, just hit us up on our Facebook group, you know, and you can, there's a few questions to answer and you'd be let into the group and you can, you know, come and be part of the community. And for those that, not black um that doesn't mean that you can't be allies in helping to kind of further the cause or anything like that so you know please do join us please do support what we're trying to do because at the end of the day we are trying to change a narrative we are trying to you know we're celebrating black fathers we're inspiring black fathers we're healing and we're educating and that's very much what dope black dads is all about that beautiful i'm glad you said that Umar, because it, it is very important that it's not just black dads that are listening to the podcast or doing in. It's it is important for white people to check in and go, oh, okay, I, I completely missed that. I completely mm-hmm. through whatever way uh, I didn't. And now I've got looking forward, I can see it from this perspective or whatnot. And uh, that's what me and Seb hope that we can do anyway. It is. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's why we reached out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think Jim and I are fully aware that we're not black, but we, we can. Uh, but if our listeners, um, like we know that most of our listeners are white and yet we still felt that it was important to have you on and for you to tell your story and the dope black dad story because like jim said it's just opening sometimes i think all it is is just opening someone's eyes to a certain situation that maybe they never even thought about or had the opportunity to kind of become aware and Mm. now hopefully with this conversation and if they go onto your website which i've been on which has so much information on there then they can find out more and then maybe that might help them understand one of their friends more or whatever it may be. Do you know what I mean? I think it's all about that and understanding that yeah. black, white, whatever the case may be, we're all human. And like there's, we can learn from each other. I think so that's yeah. what we're trying to hope to do with this anyway. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I hope that I'm able to dispel some of the myths that people may have, or some of the kind of preconceptions that people might have about, you know, being a black male or being a black father and what that actually means, or even just fatherhood, in general, in general. so yeah. important that you know we you know you do there's so many like mums podcasts that are out there and obviously with Dope Black Dads we have got a podcast I forgot to plug that where you can find us on all relevant podcast channels Spotify etc you know and it's so important that we have these conversations and you know 
please tune in to our podcast, listen in, because we do give yeah. those real insights. And it's very much real men who are involved in real life situations. Yeah. We are professionals, we are husbands, we are boyfriends, we are partners, we, you know, we're all of that. And we kind of touch upon so many different issues on a week to week basis. So, you know, if, if anything, at least listen to the podcast and, you know, learn some more from that. And I hope that I've given you a little bit of a snippet of what we're about and what we do. Ah, oh, for sure, for sure. And yeah, the podcast is top. So anyone who's listening who hasn't listened before, please go listen. It's not just about dads. Look, I'm not a dad. Um, at least I hope not. But um, and I've I've had some. I've listened to some great conversations on there. So it's great stuff for anyone who wants to go listen to that. But uh, for now, Umar, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it, and we hope to speak soon. Definitely. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks a million. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.